The views presented are those of the speakers and do not necessarily represent the views of the Department of Defense or its components. Zoomies, welcome to the last episode of the fall 2022 semester. Today we welcome the one and only Colonel Douglas Wicker. He graduated from the academy in 1995 and went on to become a test pilot, worked with DARPA, spent some time in the Pentagon, and is now a permanent professor in the Aero Department here at the academy. We touch on topics including ways to become a test pilot and astronaut, how engineering has helped him as a pilot, bureaucracy and how to combat it, and lots more. Tune in for all the details, you're cleared hot. Colonel Wickert, thanks for coming on. You bet, Andrew. Here we are on uh, the first day of finals. I had my bio final this morning. And it went well, right? It did. I got, uh, <laughs> let's not get into the details of the numbers. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's all good. Um, so get into things. Do you think um, you could give a little background of yourself, what you've done in your career, where you're sure. from? Yeah. Uh, so I grew up as a as an Air Force brat, actually. Uh, so the Air Force was not a mystery when I came here to the you know to the academy. Yep. Uh, I'm a 1995 grad. Uh, went to grad school uh, immediately after uh, after graduation. Where so, about uh, MIT? Okay. Uh, so I went to MIT on a National Science Foundation fellowship. Uh, had a pilot slot, so went to pilot training. You know, directly after MIT. Uh, pilot training is a year long, and then the follow-on after that with water survival and IFF training, um, plus F-16, six months of that. So, you know, another another entire year before I showed up at my first fighter squadron, mm-hmm. uh, which was the fourth fighter squadron at Hill Air Force Base, the Fujins. Uh, the podcast, the folks on the podcast can't see it, but there's the patch uh, to the <laughs> What Fugins. is that exactly? Uh, that, so the goblin. Fujin is an Okinawan wind god. Okay. Uh, so during Vietnam, the Fourth Fighter Squadron, uh, there was a big windstorm that came through and destroyed a lot of the uh, the F4s that they were flying, uh, and that's when they adopted the the Fujin as the okay. as the squadron token mascot, whatever it is. Sweet. Um, so I uh, flew F16s at at Hill uh, with the Fourth uh, for two years. Did a couple deployments. Mm-hmm. Uh, 9/11 happened during that time period, and uh, I was actually. Uh, uh, number two on the very first manned uh, uh, combat air patrol cap over L.A. Uh, after 9/11. So, Holy crap! Uh, you know we, you know it happened. Uh, it was about uh, it was in the morning. I was on my way to work uh, when uh, you know over the radio we heard about an airplane crashing in and a second airplane. And, and by the time I got to the squadron, you know we'd already canceled flying for the day, and you know we're you know maintenance was trying to figure out, well, how do we get some missiles and some guns and, and some bullets in the guns? Um, and, and that took about 12 hours before we'd actually generated aircraft. Uh, but then I launched as the, uh, you know, the very first manned, manned cap mm-hmm. uh, as number two. The, the weapons officer was the, was the flight lead. Okay. Um, so I did that for two years and then uh, went to Korea uh, to fly F-16s with the, um, with the Fiends, the 36 Fighter Squadron, Harumph. Uh, so, uh, did that for 18 months before going to test pot school. Uh, so I went through the uh, Naval test pot school, uh, Air Force always sends one guy to Navy, Navy always sends one guy to Air Force. And I was the, the token Air Force guy in my Navy class. Why is that? Uh, I've heard certain reasons, but I want to hear it vetted. <laughs> <laughs> what have you heard? Uh, I won't name names, but I hear that 
Air Force sends their best <laughs> to Navy so that Navy looks even worse. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. the um, so as part of uh, going to test pod school, you do a uh, you do an interview. And back when I did it, you actually did it what they called five flight. Okay. So they put you in five different airplanes just to make sure you weren't an idiot. Um, what do you mean five different airplanes? Like different types yeah, of aircraft? Yeah, so we jumped in the C-12. Uh, we jumped in – actually, I did five flights in the C-12. Uh, so like a heavy guy, they'll put into a T-38 or an F-16. Um, a fighter guy like me, they put into a crew airplane. Mm-hmm. And they just want to see you in an environment that you're not used to and how do you adapt and are okay. you adaptable? Are you teachable in a plane that you've never flown before? Because mm-hmm. that's a lot about what test pilot school is. Uh, so in the after, you know, after completing the five flight, you do an interview with the TPS commandant. It was Dr. K at the time, uh, Colonel K at the time, uh, now Dr. K, he's, uh, uh, the J eight, uh, okay. out of PACAF, um, FCS out there. Uh, so I sit down across the table and he's like, well, you did pretty well. Uh, he's like, we're going to send you to Navy. And I'm like, yes, sir. He's like, we like to send people that we think can uh, win all the awards. And, <laughs> so he was right, yeah. Well, I, I, so I, 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 I now realize being where I am that he was just making a joke. Okay. Um, but as a, as a mid-level captain, I had no idea he was joking. I'm like, yes, sir. And so I took it as <laughs> Colonel K said, go win all the awards. So I did. Mm-hmm. Um, so after the uh, Naval Test Pilot School, uh, went down to Eglin Air Force Base with the 40th Flight Test Squadron and, and flew flight tests there in uh, F-16s. Uh, did a lot of weapons testing, mm-hmm. uh, flutter testing, loads testing, uh, some basic aircraft limit testing. Um, after that, I got selected for a uh, picked up for a PhD program. Uh, so I went to AFIT uh, to do uh, my PhD. Um, I'm assuming in aero. Uh, in aero. So I was actually an astromath uh, double major here okay. as a cadet, uh, and then did. Uh, Aero Astro at MIT, uh, although it was really more double E because I was doing a space-based radar um, replacement AWACS, and so I need a lot of you know radar courses. Um, but then uh, when I went for my PhD, uh, you know I'd never been a fluids guy, never been a structures guy, and ended up doing fluid structure interaction um, as as part of an Aero PhD uh, okay. at AFIT. Um, I was supposed to go to uh, – so the, the pipeline I was in, the Ph.D. pipeline, was to go back to the test pilot school and be on their faculty there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was actually en route to, uh, to go into the test pilot school and did a DARPA fellowship first. And during the course of that DARPA fellowship, ran into some folks that were kicking off a brand-new program. And they said, you're exactly the kind of person that we'd like uh, to work on this. And I, you know, I explained to them, I – it sounds great. I mean, what you guys want to do is really cool, but I've already got a job. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, the four-star, uh, General Hoffman, um, AFNC commander, said we could have whoever we want, and we want you. And so my orders were changed like that. And instead of going out to Edwards with the family, we went to uh, Virginia, and I was in a program office for two years where we uh, built and designed uh, an X-plane. Okay. Uh, and I was fortunate enough to come out on the squadron commander list right when the X-plane was, was done and ready for flight. And so I actually got to go out and stand up a brand new squadron out on the test range and, and take that X-plane through first flight and envelope expansion. Uh, it's every test pilot's dream to, to work on an X-plane and to, to not only do that, but to actually you know, take an X-plane through first flight and to, to fly an X-plane that you were part of the source selection and, and the two years of engineering and designing and building and, 
And That's seeing crazy. it emerge was, I mean, just an incredible opportunity, incredible experience. And it was really just about being at the right place at the right time. Mm-hmm. Uh, after uh, Squadron Command, I, uh, you know, there's uh, throughout your Air Force career, you'll do SOS as a captain, then you'll do ACSC or some type of intermediate developmental education as a major, uh, and then there's War College uh, or its equivalent uh, as a lieutenant colonel or colonel. So. Uh, I went off to the Eisenhower School, what used to be called ICAF, at National Defense University for my SDE, Senior Developmental Education. Mm-hmm. Uh, went, then went back to uh, Ops Group Command, uh, then a stint in the Pentagon after that. Uh, and that's when the professor of aeronautics at the Air Force Academy opened up. Um, these are kind of like uh, Supreme Court uh, mm-hmm. positions. you got to wait for somebody to die or retire uh, in order to get them. So, <laughs> hopefully uh, it was once retirement. Again, well, hopefully it is. Uh, right place, right time, mm-hmm. and uh, was able to come here in uh, 2019 uh, as the perm professor for aeronautics. Sweet. Uh, I, I got to mention, I'm actually a mass hole myself. You mentioned MIT. Yeah. What was your experience in Massachusetts? Oh, I, we loved it. My, uh, In fact, my wife, um, that was her favorite assignment still. Just, okay. you know, uh, the, the fall weather, the, the leaves changing colors. Yeah, the foliage, and, yeah. Oh, it's uh, – and Boston's one of those towns where – any night, you know, you want to do, hey, let's go listen to jazz tonight. Let's go listen to the Boston Symphony Orchestra. Let's go do this. Let's go do that. And and it's there. You know, you yeah. have all of those kind of opportunities. No, I, as soon as pretty much uh, next Saturday, I got a Bruins game coming up. Oh, fantastic. As someone who, who grew up playing <laughs> hockey, I've never been to a professional game, but this will be my first one. Outstanding. So to get into the questions here. Most people at the academy here know you because you've been a test pilot. There's a sign outside that says, talk to a test pilot. So I can't get into a lot of things because they're obviously classified. But what are the routes to become a test pilot? Yeah, good, good question. So uh, we select uh, – there's, there's, every year there's two test pilot school classes. They start six months apart. Uh, the course is a year long. Uh, and every course, every class has 24 students in it. Uh, half of those are pilots. Half of them are engineers. Okay. Um, so any in any given year, you know, we're picking 24 pilots or 24 rated. You know, of those 12 pilots or 12 rated, you know, there may be a CISO in a class. There may be, you know, RPA guys are pilots, mm-hmm. uh, but there may be an RPA. It, it, it varies from class to class. So if you look at the uh, last couple of TPS classes, we've been taking more bomber guys for the obvious reason that, hey, we're about to do this thing called B-21, mm-hmm. uh, so we need more bomber background. Uh, if we go back four or five years, we actually were taking more tanker guys than we normally do because we were doing this thing, KC-46, yeah. exactly. So it, it always responds somewhat to the need of the Air Force, but you know, any given class will typically have you know, six fighter guys, maybe a tanker transport, C-17, uh, you know, one or two bomber folks you know, in your average typical class. Mm-hmm. Um, when we select for test pilot school, we're looking for three things. Uh, one is the academic background. Uh, you've got to have a technical degree. It doesn't necessarily have to be engineering. You know, physics works. Um, the advantage here at the academy is uh, we have a very broad engineering core. Uh, so, you know, typically uh, we take engineers that didn't go to the academy, but there are some other majors here at the academy that have sufficient engineering. Mm-hmm. Uh, what we really care about is can you succeed in this intense year of test pod school? Okay. Um, you know, it is essentially a four-year aeronautical engineering, applied aeronautical engineering program taught in 12 months. 
uh, with a bunch of flying thrown mm. in. Um, that must be difficult for the engineers. Uh, you said people that haven't flown before. Is that that's true? They um, so uh, they'll they'll get a lot of stick time, um, and we we send them through some workups ahead of time to just give them some familiarity in the aircraft. Uh, but they don't necessarily have to always take off and land. Okay. Uh, those kind of things are just for the pilots. So, you know, we send pilots so that they learn how to talk to engineers. And we send engineers to test pilot school so that they learn about the flying environment and how to talk to pilots. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, that, one, that first thing we're looking for is that academic background. You know, we want to be certain that somebody has the, the technical chops to succeed in test pilot school. Because it costs about $2 million to put somebody through the schoolhouse. Okay. Uh, and, and so it's a major investment, and you don't want to put somebody in that's not going to succeed academically. Makes you soft look like nothing. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so academic background. Uh, the second is flying ability. Um, you know, here we look at Form 8 check rides. We look at upgrades, you know, what level in the community, you know, have the, if they're a, uh, a fighter person, fighter guy, fighter gal, have they upgraded to uh, – Force ship flight lead, IP, uh, mission commander. Uh, if they're a tanker transport type of person, you know, are they a uh, crew commander? Uh, you know, so there's different qualifications. You know, I I always thought that hey, you know, once I'm through my F-16 RTU and I'm now I'm in the squadron, I'm done. Don't have to do you know that first two years was all grade sheets. Mm-hmm. Every single time you flew, you were getting a grade on what you were doing. So and the pressure's were, off. Oh, now. and so I'm like, oh, pressure's off. No, it just just started. Because <laughs> you get to your squad, and the very first thing you do is you go through like a six week MQT mission qualification training. Okay. Where now it's even more intense. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know we we look at all of that for flying background. Uh, that's the second criteria. So academic background, flying ability, and then the third one is just general leadership, officer qualities, uh, the types of things that you see on OPRs. So those three things together are, are kind of how we do the selection criteria. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I also understand that you were on the board of almost becoming, like I understand a lot of test pilots become astronauts as mm-hmm. well. That's correct. And from the people I've talked to, you were very close to being an astronaut, but I don't know what the difference is that yeah. were um, between you and the other people that were chosen. Yep, yep. The um, So NASA lets the Air Force and the Navy do the easy work for them. Uh, we let, um, so almost exclusively, the, I can think of one exception, there was a Navy SEAL uh, that got picked up about the same era that, that I was interviewing in Houston. Um, but other than that, it's almost always, I, I'll say 99.9% of the time, when NASA picks their astronauts, they're picking from the ranks of folks that have gone through test pod school. Okay. Uh, and that's true on the Navy side. That's true on the Air Force side. It's mostly true on the Army side as well. It's very, very rare that NASA picks up an Army yeah. person. Uh, they did in the uh, in the group that I interviewed with. They picked up an Army helicopter pilot okay. uh, who was actually detailed uh, to NASA Johnson in Houston, flying helicopter support uh, for them. So okay. you know, once again, the, somebody that, that knew who they are. But the Army has test pods too. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know they're the ones that that often uh, you know it's just the nature of space flight is very very similar to flight test mm-hmm. in that. There's checklists. We're doing something for the very first time. It's essentially an experiment every t- every single time we do that. So that diligence, that understanding, you know, what is the system doing? 
Uh, the thing about flight tests, the thing about space flight is you need to have had created a mental model for what you expect to happen. And so this is where the kind of the engineering judgment comes in. You know, we're about to go and do this first thing with an airplane, or we're about to do this first thing with a, with a spacecraft. We've never done this before. Well, based on our engineering judgment, what do we expect to happen? Because when something different from our expectations starts to happen, starts to occur, that's the time to hit the pause button because we really didn't understand the system. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's called exploring the edge of the envelope. You've probably heard that phrase. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when you go out there, you're going out into the unknown. And because of that, you don't necessarily really know what's going to happen. And uh, I, I, so it's really quite easy for NASA just to say, well, the Air Force and the Navy have already done the hard work of, of training up these mm-hmm. folks with this, with this background and this mentality. We'll just pick from the ranks of test pilots and test engineers, flight mm-hmm. test engineers. Uh, so, again, the vast majority of them do that. Uh, now, with, um, with test pilot school, it takes a minimum amount of time to acquire the hours. Uh, so, you know, for Air Force, it's 1,000 hours. Or if you're in a fighter, uh, 750 hours is what the reg says. That's the minimum to require okay. uh, to apply. Um, you don't actually – you can apply before you've had that if by the time you start test pilot school, you've, you have met, that, yeah. you've okay. met that threshold. Uh, with the astronaut, it's not, you know, NASA doesn't care. Uh, so we've actually, NASA has selected folks while they're still in test pod school for the astronaut corps. And so, just pulled them right out of it? Well, I mean, they'll let them graduate okay. because it's typically about a year between, you know, before when they make their announcements before you actually start mm-hmm. uh, astronaut candidate training. You know, you're known as an ass can in that case. <laughs> <laughs> True story. <laughs> uh, and uh, astronaut training is about two years long. Uh, but that doesn't start for typically a year after they've they've picked up the class. Okay. Um, so to answer your question about you know how far along uh, did I get the uh, I was uh, I interviewed in 2010 uh, or 2009 for the 2010 class. Mm-hmm. Um, that was the the 2010 class was the very first class that they had after Columbia. Um, so Columbia disintegrated on uh, Groundhog Day, uh, two February 2003. Uh, it was actually right as I was getting ready to leave Korea to go to test pod school. And they had already picked a, a astronaut class uh, the year before. Um, and in the aftermath of Columbia, we didn't have another class for eight years. Uh, you know, prior to that, they were picking uh, probably every 18 months to 24 months, every 18 months to two years, they were picking a new class. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there was a gap there, you know, kind of right in your prime, you know, when you're finishing test pod school. Uh, where we just weren't doing any uh, any selection, uh, and when we interviewed, uh, they they were very clear to us. You know the you know shuttle program only had a handful of flights left. They said we're not. You know if you thought you were coming here to fly shuttle, which is what gener you know really two generations of astronauts had done yeah. know, prior to that, like you know tough. Um, you know we're not. You know we've already got fifty astronauts in the astronaut office who have never flown, and they're going to be lucky if they get on the shuttle in mm-hmm. the final final months of the pro or final. You know, a couple years of the program here. Uh, we're picking for the for the station, uh, and of course, everybody in you know, like, well, we don't care. Yeah, <laughs> we'll go regardless of of what you ask us to do. Um, so the um, uh, the first round of interviews was 120, and then they down selected to 40. Uh, and so you know the the way it was, one of the folks that was actually uh, in the astronaut corps at the time, he taught here in the department. Uh, after he left NASA, uh, Mash Dutton, Colonel Dutton. Okay. Uh, he, he actually lives in the local area here. Uh, he was training for uh, one of the final shuttle flights uh, when I was down there interviewing, and I, 
you know, stopped by. He, he was, I think, five years, uh, four years um, ahead of me, you know, kind of a, so 91 grad, mm-hmm. 90, 90, 91 grad, um, you know, exact same kind of path, went to MIT, you know, pilot training, da, 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 da. Uh, and so I'd stop by his cubicle just to introduce myself. I'm like, hey, you know, Mash, you have no idea who I am, but I know all about you. Um, he's like, oh, I'm about to go down to do an EP sim here. You want to come with me? And I'm like, sure. So you know, got to go down and, you know, he was going through the simulator of a launch abort on the shuttle, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, getting all the you know bells and whistles thrown at him. Um, but on the way down there, he said, you know, here's, here's the deal is you, you know, by, by mere fact of being down here, you've been handed a lottery ticket. And now you're just waiting to see if they call your number. Mm-hmm. You know, any one of the 40 people, any one of the 120 people uh, that they've got down here for the interview, um, you pick nine of them, and you're going to have a good class. Um, you know, so you know, don't sweat it. No, was his advice, and and that was actually, I think, really good advice. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like if you're if you have these even 120 people, they're probably extremely qualified. What makes the difference? You know. It's, it sounds like it's almost just by chance. Well, it, so all, you know, the, um, and you guys are in a really good spot, you know, with the way that the pace is changing, you know, this is what I love telling cadets is, um, is, you know, if that's a goal, that's a great goal. And there's going to be a lot of opportunities. There's going to be more opportunities for your generation, uh, than there were for mine. Um, Oh, because of just because more of, space yeah, just because of the numbers, um, you know the the number of missions that we have coming up, you know, you know we kind of hit that that spot where, uh, you know, we were wrapping down shuttle, we weren't didn't have the station really up and running yet, uh, and so it's all demand, you know, supply and demand kind of thing. Uh, so you guys are going to be really, really well situated, um, and it's it's a it's a great goal, um, and you are on a path already and by mere fact of being at the academy uh, and going to pilot training uh, and going to test pot school, you are on a path that everybody before has followed. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if you look at the ranks, all of them did that. Um, and so um, set it as a goal and don't, you know, close any doors, don't burn any bridges in pursuit of that goal. Uh, but, but it's probably not a good idea to, you know, say my life will be a failure if I don't achieve, you know, whatever it is, mm-hmm. you know, you know, being an astronaut, being president of the United States, being chief of staff of the Air Force. Um, there are so many different ways to measure success in life. And the attainment of any single thing uh, is um, that's outside of your control other than just, you know, doing the right things along the way um, is not necessarily a recipe for, for happiness. Mm-hmm. Um, so enjoy the journey and do all those things, you know, is kind of the, you know, the advice that the, you know, the folks that, you know, you know, have been astronauts and, you know, offer to the younger folks. Um, and if it works out, it works out. Uh, and for there's, it's going to work out for a lot more of your generation, uh, than it did for mine. Uh, I, you know, so three really good buddies got picked up in that 2010 class that, uh, that I interviewed for, mm-hmm. uh, one of them was my classmate here, uh, Chell Lindgren, um, great guy. Um, in fact, we interviewed the same week, uh, he uh, he has an interesting story. I, you can cut this out if if you need to, because um, we're talking about a lot of other things. But um, so he was a biology major. In fact, his picture's down on the wall there in the biology okay. department, um, right next to E.O. Wilson. Um, he actually got kicked out of the Air Force uh, during pilot training because uh, the Air Force thought he had asthma. Okay, uh, and he had been the bio department's GSP uh, scholar, 
Uh, so he's like, well, can I go back? You know, so during tweets, during T37s, they're like, ah, oh, you've got asthma. Uh, you know, we're going to medically discharge you. And he's like, well, can I go to the academy and teach biology? And they're like, nope, we don't need you. So out of the Air Force, uh, you know, after barely two years in the Air Force, and uh, he goes to med school, uh, becomes an ER doc up in Minnesota, uh, sees an, uh, an advertisement for a NASA flight doc, um, you know, kind of program. <laughs> Applies for that, gets picked up. So he's down at NASA as a flight doc. Um, and and then, the, you know, the call for, you know, the astronaut classes go out. And so he puts in for the astronaut. And so we walk in that very first week. We were the second week of six uh, six rounds of interviews. And we walk in. I'm like, Chell. <laughs> and he goes, Doug. <laughs> we hadn't seen each other in 15 years. And, and we get to talk. And he's like, well, you know, the path that you took is exactly what I was planning. I was going to go to test pilot school and apply for that, and, you know, do this and do that and do that. And I'm like, well, yeah, but chill, you know, look, I mean, you're a doctor, you're a flight pilot <laughs> at NASA. You, you got a really good chance because again, we don't need pilots to fly the space shuttle. We need, you know, doctors mm -hmm. on the space station that can, you know, that's crazy. <laughs> so, and, and uh, he's one of the, the lead astronauts right now in the Artemis program. Okay. Uh, so, you know, really exciting to, to watch, you know, watch him uh, do that. So that he was one of my buddies, uh, two fish, Jack Fisher, 96 grad from here. Uh, we were, uh, so we were in sister classes, uh, while I was at Navy, he was at air force. So I won all the awards at Navy. He won all the awards <laughs> at air force. Uh, we were in the 40th flight test squadron together. Uh, he was an astro major, uh, followed me to MIT on a Draper fellowship. Um, so I've known two fish for, for a real long time. Uh, and then the, uh, the third really good buddy, was my my DT two partner in test pilot school? So Tomcat pilot. Okay. Uh, Tonto uh, Reed Tonto Wiseman. Um, I'm not familiar. Yeah. So uh, that's just his call. Tonto. Oh, okay. Call All right, yeah. uh, Reed Wiseman, uh, but Tomcat guy. Uh, and as part of test pilot school, you do a final project. We went to uh, Sweden, Linköping, Sweden, flew the Gripen, mm -hmm. and wrote a whole DT two report on on the Gripen. But he and I were you know like that through uh, through Pax River, and so. All three of those guys are in the same, you know, there were nine in that class and three of them were really good buddies. Mm -hmm. um, so it, the, um, I, that's a very long rambling non-answer to your question, which was what is, what's the difference? Uh, and, and I'll say there really is no difference. Um, you know, if there's one thing, all three of those guys, if I were to say a, a characteristic of all three of those guys, they're just incredibly fun to be around. Mm -hmm. And that's really, when you, when you go for the astronaut interview, that's what they're really, you know, there's 12 astronauts sitting around the table and you're sitting what they call the armpit. You know, there's this little tea table. It's the same way they've done it, for, you know, back since the, the Gemini days. Um, and you're sitting right there and, and really the question all those other dozen astronauts sitting around the table are, are asking is, is this somebody I want to hang out in a trailer with yeah. for six months? Because uh, that's essentially what the missions are now. So it come down to yeah, you know, back then it was two weeks. You know, this is somebody I want to hang out in a trailer uh, for two weeks with you because know, you can't go outside if you don't like the person. <laughs> you can. Yeah. I guess you can send the person outside, right? <laughs> you got to deal with them for six months. That's a differentiating yeah. factor. Okay. Yeah. Or one of them at least. Yeah. So it's you know it's not about how smart you are. It's not how good a pilot you are. You know, all those are kind of those get you in the door. Um, so do what. Do you think you can shoot down any misconceptions? Because personally, mm -hmm. as a non-aero major and not very acquainted with 
the misconceptions or ideas of test pilot mm -hmm. school and being an astronaut. Can you speak to some of those and clear them up maybe if there are any? I don't know if I know of any common misconceptions. The, um, you know, we often, you know, when you, when you read the resumes uh, of the folks, you're like, oh, wow, you know, they're number one at this and number one at that and this and this and this. Um, but there's also a lot of non-astronauts that are also number one of this and, num you know, so mm -hmm. um, it's not about being uh, the absolutely smartest, most brilliant um, or being the, you know, the test pilot with the golden hands. Uh, there's lots of people that are that good. Um, it's really just about um, you know, being in the right place, right time, and uh, being a good, being a good person. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so you know, again, with the misconceptions, you know, probably the biggest misconception is that it's this impossible, unattainable thing, uh, and it's not. I mean, plenty of people have uh, obtained it. You know, mm -hmm. it doesn't necessarily mean that. You know, if if you, you know, that if you play golf for your entire life, that you're going to have a hole in one, <laughs> um, but plenty of people do. Yeah. Right. So. And you can't have a hole-in-one if you don't play the game. Mm -hmm. So take those shots. Yeah. Okay. So I guess in your time flying operationally, um, using your extensive engineering background, how do you think that came into play in helping you? I'm assuming it didn't yeah. inhibit you in any way. Yeah. This is a, I love this question. Uh, um, and it's, it's because, I mean, if there is a misconception, this is the one that I, I – I, I am on a personal mission to, <laughs> to actually there's two there, there's one there's I was lied to when I was in third grade about what pr produces lift there's so many myths of lift out there so I'm doing all I can to, <laughs> to squash okay. that one well what actually uh, let's hear if you're willing to get into that lift one because I I learned for the first time this summer during soaring what lift even was okay and like the most basic understanding of what lift is so what I was told you know if you look at an airfoil right the cross section of a wing uh, it's it's curved, mm -hmm. uh, it's rounder on the top, and so that two air molecules reaching the leading edge of the wing, you know, because it has further, you know, an air molecule that goes around the top of the wing because it has further to travel, has to go faster, to meet up with the air molecule that goes around the bottom of the wing. Why do they have to meet up? They don't. They don't. That's okay. a, it's a myth. It's that's <laughs> that is a completely around. In fact, they don't meet up. Okay. Uh, you know, we've got some great video footage. You know, some flash video footage from a smoke tunnel. Uh, we got a smoke tunnel down in the lab mm -hmm. that shows that the air that goes over the top, it doesn't care about that air that goes around <laughs> the bottom. It says, see ya, I'm out of here. <laughs> I'm going to leave you far behind. The air does travel faster over the top, but for a different reason. Okay. That faster air flowing over the top through Bernoulli's principle results in lower static pressure. And that difference in pressure, you know, the high pressure on the bottom, low pressure on the top is what produces lift. Okay. Um, so anyway, but that's, it's, you'll hear it all over the place. You know, in pilot training, they taught us that in ground school. The, it's called the equal transit theory. Uh, it's absolutely ridiculous. There's no, there's no law of unrequited law of air molecules have to join <laughs> hands on the backside of the air. I mean, it just doesn't exist. Um, but it's what I was told when I was in third grade. And I felt like I was lied to as a 10-year-old. The uh, fact that you were told about lift in third grade is ridiculous. <laughs> like, I was at the airfield, and they were like, okay, if we're launching to the south which way do we want the wind to be going and i was like 
the south, obviously. <laughs> It'll push the aircraft that way. You want tailwind, right? And they're no, like, no. you want the wind over the wing. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. I was like 20 years old hearing that. And Okay. So what's the other so, misconception? So the other misconception is that, hey, you're going to get a pilot slot anyway. Pick an easy major. Because mm-hmm. um, you don't need to to understand a lot of engineering. You're not going to use your engineering uh, degree uh, if you go fly airplanes. Um, and it is absolutely true. You can get a pilot slot with any major here at the Academy. Um, it is, uh, you know, and also, you know, kind of related, it's not the same um, misconception, uh, but it's, uh, I'll have a lot of aero majors that, you know, come and like, you know, you know, they'll be reaching their AFSC priority. And I'm like, you know, I love, I don't know if I want to fly. I, you know, I think I like flying, you know, soaring was a lot of fun, uh, but I really like the engineering. And, and so I don't, you know, I don't know how to choose, you know, one or the other. And, and, and the, the point is that there, it is not a choice. Mm-hmm. Um, although you do not need a technical degree to fly airplanes, you will definitely use your technical skills flying. Um, and so let me, let me explain that um, with, a, with an example. Um, so very first fighter squadron, um, you know, we deploy, you know, I'm through MQT, I'm so new in the squadron. I'm a brand new wingman. I don't don't even have a call sign yet. Um, and we're deployed to uh, Operation Southern Watch. So we're flying out of Kuwait, flying over Iraq, uh, dropping bombs on Iraq every time that they do something that you know in violation of the no-fly zone or whatever. Um, and the bombs are falling short. Uh, so we're dropping Paveway Twos. Uh, these are laser guided bombs, um, GBU GBU twelves, GBU tens, and there were all these theories about why the bombs might be falling short. You know, the weapons officer had just come from weapons school. It's like, oh, I heard about this new laser jammer uh, that they're making. Maybe the Iraqis have got this laser jammer, and they're jamming our lasers. Um, and somebody else says, I think it's just a bad lot of bombs. It's all the bombs that were built on Monday morning, you know, when everybody's hungover from the weekend. Um, somebody else thought, ah, it's, um, it's humidity in the Seeker Dome. What's uh, the Seeker Dome? Uh, so the way the uh, the way the paveways work is, uh, and of course your your podcast audience won't be able to see this, but <laughs> I, I'm now showing how the bombs fly with my hands. Um, you drop and they fall ballistically at first. Uh, they've got a you know set of fins on the back, set of canards up on the front. Uh, What's a canard? Uh, canard is a wing that at the front. Uh, so it's okay. like a, it's a tail in front. Okay, uh, is what a canard is. Um, and there's a, there's a seeker, laser seeker at the very, very front. So when you drop the bomb, uh, you have a targeting pod on your aircraft, uh, that you can, you know, look through. It's got, you know, essentially a telescope with a TV camera. Ours are worked in the infrared mm-hmm. uh, spectrum. Uh, and so you can see the ground and there's also a laser that's collimated with it. So you can actually put a laser right in the middle of where you're looking. And that laser energy will reflect off of, you know, off the ground or off the target in this case. So you put the crosshairs on the target, light the laser, uh, fire the laser, and the bomb, the seeker, uh, and the bomb will see that laser, and it uses a, a control method called bang-bang. Uh, so if the laser seeker is low in the seeker dome, it pushes the canards, you know, full hard over nose down uh, so that the bomb goes this okay. way. And then if the – and now the laser is going to be high in the seeker dome, so it'll just do that, but it'll – It's constantly it'll adjusting track. Like yeah. every second. Yep. Okay. Uh, and it'll, you know, track down to the target. Well, if you get moisture in that dome, then the laser energy is not going to come through and it won't be able to see it or refract through funny. 
Um, but we're in the desert. There's no humidity in the desert. There's mm-hmm. no way, you know, you know, your glasses will fog up when you, you know, go in from an air-conditioned building out to a humid summer day. But that's not what's happening in Iraq in January, mm-hmm. where it's, you know, 2% humidity. Um, so we had recently moved our, we were typically flying in the, and dropping in the 20 to 24 blocks, so 20,000 to 24,000 feet. But the Iraqis had brought in some AAA that was reaching up in the high teens, so we had moved up to the 25 to 29 block. Is that so, like AAA's surface air missiles? Uh, yeah, okay. yeah, AAA, uh, anti-aircraft artillery. Okay. Um, had to think about that one. <laughs> <laughs> it's like MANPAD. What does MANPAD stand for? <laughs> what does RADAR stand for? <laughs> That's a, what? Radio Detection and Ranging. Uh, RADAR is an acronym. I had no idea. Just... <laughs> and, of course, there's, ra- there's acronyms of acronyms. So SAR... Surface oh, synthetic wait. aperture radar, but radar is itself an acronym. Laser is an acronym as well. What's laser? Uh, light amplitude stimulated emission something. The R is something. <laughs> the R is something. The R is radar. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we had moved our altitude block from 20,000 to 24,000 up to 25 to 29, and we were dropping up there. It was high enough that we were in the jet stream. Uh, and so, you know, we got a hundred knots of wind and we're like, ah, we'll drop with a tailwind, right? You know, that way that, you know, gives the bomb extra energy. It won't get lift though. It won't get lift. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and so, you know, I'm like, I wonder if that has anything to do with it. Uh, and so we come back after one mission and, you know, I said, you know, what if there was a 50 knot wind shear? 5,000 feet below the drop altitude. So at 29,000 feet, we're in the jet stream, so it's 100 knots. What if 5,000 feet below that? So at 24,000 feet, the wind dropped off to 50 knots. So 50 knots of wind shear. What would happen? And so I sat down, you know, pulled up a very simple little spreadsheet and just, you know, did the ballistics uh, Mm -hmm. of a bomb falling, you know, did a first order Euler integration. Um, What would happen to the bomb? Um, And so it's falling ballistically, you know, hits that wind shear. And it continues to fall ballistically, but now it doesn't have as much wind pushing it to the target. And so shear means it's the wind's going in the opposite direction. It's uh, going, it can. Or? So there can be wind shear that where it changes directions. Uh, wind is a vector. Okay. Uh, you know, so velocity is a vector. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it can change direction or it can change magnitude. So in this case, I just modeled. It's got 100 knots at 29,000 feet. And typically the wind drops off as you go down in altitude. So it typically drops off. You know, We model it as linearly drops off. And I said, okay, so it drops off linearly, and then when it gets to 24,000 feet, you just drop off 50 knots. So there's 50 knots of magnitude of shear, same direction still. Okay. And the la- you wouldn't fire the laser continuously. The bomb would fall ballistically, and then either 12 seconds or 20 seconds, depending on your tactics, uh, you would start firing the laser. Um, and so at 20 seconds laser start time before impact, um, it turns out that the bomb falling this way uh, the target is outside of 18 degrees. And the critical thing for that is 18 degrees is the field of view of the seeker. So the seeker never sees the laser spot. So it just falls ballistically. It just continues to fall ballistically. The, that bang-bang control theory never turns on, and so it never guides to the target. And, you know, that's something that, that wasn't my job. You know, I was just a wingman. As a, as a brand-new wingman, you, you have three basic responses. You know, two, um, lead you on fire. And, and actually, some flight leads don't even want you to tell them that they're on fire because you don't have the SA to know if they're on. Tell them that they're trailing smoke. <laughs> and I won't say the third one. The, um, 
but uh, you know, so it's you know, hey, you know, guys, you want to take a look at this? You know, this might have some implications on our our bomb thing. And they go, oh, look at that! Look at the big brain on Beaker. <laughs> <clears throat> so you know, the point of that is that was not my job. That's probably something I only did because I had an engineering background. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it wasn't a very complicated calculation, um, but that type of you know, I've got half a dozen stories like that. Um, where because you have a you know certain set of tools in your toolbox, you can use them to solve problems, mm-hmm. uh, and that's um, flying airplanes can be a very technically challenging career field, uh, and so you know there's cadets that worry like oh I really like the engineering I really like to fly I don't know what to do I'm like do both, mm-hmm. you know you can still be an engineer while you're flying operationally. In fact, the National Defense Strategy you know, the 2018 NDS calls for innovative operational concepts. And the example that we always like to share with the cadets, you know, it's a, it's a historical example, but the Doolittle raid, you know, they... They improvised the aircraft heavily. They, yeah, for, in four weeks. You know, if we tried today to, you know, go out like, well, we'll let out a contract and we'll go get FFRDC number three to, you know, give us a study on this and then we'll modify and then we'll do a contract mod and we'll take the... It would take us years. In four weeks... They had worked out a solution because we had uniform engineers that we had sent through something called the Air Service Engineering School at McCook Field there in Dayton, Ohio, mm-hmm. uh, in the aftermath of World War One. Uh, Jimmy Doolittle, Lieutenant James Doolittle, uh, was class of 1923 at the Air Service Engineering School, and because he was taught the engineering principles um, at the same time that he was learning how to fly airplanes, he was able to apply those 20 years later to figure out the Doolittle raid. Holy crap. So, and and now, I mean, it's the exact same situation now. So that's why we have a technical curriculum, you know, as part of our core here at the academy. We need that breadth of knowledge. Bingo. Keep coming back to that theme. Like, every time I talk to anyone in a different field, it seems like that breadth of knowledge is always more useful. So, um, shifting into your experience with DARPA, how did you get that job? I mean, you, you alluded to it a little bit of just being... Right place at the right time. Yeah. Yeah. So what exactly did you do there as well? The, um, so during the fellowship, uh, the fellowship was a three months fellowship. Uh, there was a new director who had just come in and, um, she's like, all right, you're going to learn about DARPA by doing what DARPA does. So she said, I want you guys to come up with, um, come up with the DARPA program and pitch it to me. And, and I'm like, wow, <laughs> this is much different than we thought we were getting into. Uh, so we did something called the uh, the Red Balloon Challenge, the DARPA Network Challenge. Okay. Um, it actually uh, it was, was fat. This is in the early days of you know Twitter was just a brand new thing, Facebook was a relatively brand new thing, and so we explored the um, you know what could social media networks do uh, for a military type problem, but we didn't want to solve a military problem. Um, you know, at this point in time, there were. You know, uh, we were, you know, real heavy into Afghanistan and, you know, so what could a crowdsource solution do? You know, could they identify, could they find a service member in a crowd mm-hmm. or across the country? You know, you know, if, you know, if they directed top down or whatever. Um, so we ran an experiment where we put 10 balloons across. We actually ran the experiment in two different ways, but we put 10 balloons across the country and there was a $40,000 prize. Uh, it was we actually put them up on the 40th anniversary of the birth of the internet. So DARPA actually is the agency that 
created the internet, mm-hmm. despite what Al Gore uh, might have said during during the uh, during the campaign. Um, <clears throat> the uh, so the ARPANET was a uh, was a connection of computers between Palo Alto and there was this, uh, might have been UCLA down in LA, uh, but that was turned on on five December, uh, nineteen fifty nine. Uh, and so 40 years after that, uh, 2009, December 5th is when we put the red balloons up. Holy and there was, a, there was a $40,000 prize, 40th anniversary, uh, for whoever could identify the locations of all 10 balloons. Um, this is obviously something you are not going to drive around the country yeah. in a single day <laughs> and say, okay, there's one. All right, where, where could the next one be? So you had to crowdsource it. You had to develop a social network of some kind. Uh, and so the announcement of it was actually also... Um, you know, how do you people recruit networks and build networks? It was actually an, an MIT Media Labs team that won. And they came up with a very, very clever reverse pyramid scheme for recruiting people. Um, but there were, there were lots of, uh, you know, really good teams uh, that, that did on this. So anyway, that's, uh, we ran that as, the, um, uh, as, as our DARPA program. Um, Wait, hold was, on. Sorry to interrupt. Do you think you could go into what that... Uh, what the reverse pyramid? Yeah, I would like yeah. to hear about that. So, the, um, you know, normally in a pyramid scheme, the person at the top wins mm-hmm. all the things. So, you know, what they did is they said, okay, uh, 40 balloons um, or 10 balloons, $40,000. So, uh, you know, that's $4,000 per balloon. Uh, the person that finds the balloon... It's two thousand dollars. You know, so if you report, if you're the first person to report the balloon on this network, you get two thousand uh, dollars. The re- person that recruited that person, you know, so there's another two thousand dollars left. The re- person that recruited that person uh, gets a thousand dollars. The person that recruited that person gets five hundred dollars. So it, it What's actually. What's the necessity of recruitment? Can't they just go to? Well, because so what a lot of the teams tried to do was deploy so one of the one of the cleverest teams um hank green and tom green i think it's uh tom um so uh hank green uh they're they're both well the one's the author uh but they um this is probably before your time they had this thing called a vlog 2.0 uh brothers 2.0 um and they had this, this is early on in the days of, of blogs and video logging. And they were two of the very first ones that built up this kind of sizable YouTube audience uh, with their video blog. Okay. Uh, they called it a vlog. What year is this? Uh, this is 2009. So 2008, okay. 2009. Yeah. Um, you know, YouTubers weren't really a thing yet. YouTube was a thing. In fact, their video blog wasn't even hosted on YouTube. Um but uh, you know they would. There were two brothers, and they would always do a you know a, a show segment from one to the other and pass off things. And they had this cohort of uh, really high school students across the country that were following you know their everything uh, called the Nerd Fighters. Um, and the way they you know would describe the Nerd Fighters, this group of you know vlog followers, um, you know Nerd Fighters fight for nerds the way that Freedom Fighters fight for freedom. <laughs> uh, I mean, absolutely hilarious. Um, uh, Hank Green has, you know, uh, written a, a bunch of uh, uh, award-winning books now, uh, and then his brother uh, has written a couple books as well. Okay, uh, 
But so what they did is they recruited their network. It's like, hey, here's what's going to happen. On 5 December, DARPA, you know, the, the company or the, uh, the government agency that invented the Internet and gave us, you know, GPS and all that other stuff, they're going to have 10 balloons out there. So your mission, uh, grab friends, you know, so they were able to canvas, you know, the entire country mm-hmm. um, because any single person is not going to collect all 10 balloons. So it's going to take a group of people. And so people were, were trying to recruit teams. So like, hey, join our team. Um, you know, there was a Georgia Tech team that was recruiting things. Hey, we're going to donate all the money to charity. There was another one that we're going to pay. Um, you know, there were really, there were about 100 different teams that had, no kidding, sizable networks, social networks uh, that were going after this. Okay. Um, and, you know, the ones that were was most clever uh, was the MIT Media Lab where they decided to, hey, we're just going to share the money with everybody. And share it in this reverse pyramid way. Okay. Uh, and and it, it proved uh, ultimately successful. The nerd fighters were were number two. Uh, they found nine of the balloons when the uh, MIT Media Lab found their uh, found the tenth one. Was it like in Alaska or something? Uh, no, they were. Um, uh, I forget which was the last one that that they were able to find. Uh, but they were also uh, the nerd fighters actually started putting up spoofer balloons. Oh, it was like, hey, that's a balloon, but they put it up. Yeah. Okay. Um, you know, like I think the, it, it was very, it was fun to watch. Um, we actually ended up, and it was, it was eye-opening for the DOD. So the entire reason that DARPA support, you know, we pitched it to DARPA, you know, here's the program we want to run. Um, and it just happened that the 40th anniversary of the internet was happening at the same time. Um, the way that we pitch it is like, hey, we, you know, this would be a good wake-up call for, you know, what, um, the power of social networks, you know, mm-hmm. it could be for disaster relief. It could be for, hey, we just had uh, somebody shot down over a country and they're hiding with the locals. But, you know, can, you know, let's say that you're in, you know, in Afghanistan, in the back country or whatever, you know, can through, you know, social networks, the government find the person in a short period of time? Or can we find the person through social networks mm-hmm. in a short period of time? And how quickly does it take to leverage that? Um, you know, there were people that thought there's no way that you can identify the coordinates, you know, within half a mile of 10 balloons randomly scattered around the country in, you know, 12 hours. You know, it's just not possible. Uh, and it turned out they did it in about eight hours. Holy crap. Uh, so we ended up briefing the, um, uh, the results uh, to all the uh, uh, vice chiefs uh, as part of the, uh, the JROC, the Joint Requirements Oversight Council. Okay. Um, you know, so we got all the four stars uh, from each of the services sitting there and we're like, here's what we just did. Uh, there's this thing. There's this thing called Twitter. Uh, yeah, they never heard of it before, right? Because this, you know, this is <laughs> <Such a old laughs> over a decade ago. Um, and this this social media thing, it's going to be a big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. So can you go on a little bit? I cut you off on, no, when okay. you're explaining DARPA. Yeah. Um, so when you were after you did that, you said it was only a three month stint, or yeah. was that to get into it and then have? Continue the fellowship. Uh, no, so the um, there's two types of DARPA fellowships. There's a three month uh, service chiefs fellows program, which is the one that I did, and there's also uh, we do have a couple of uh, of nine month, uh, ten month um, uh, IDE. So instead okay. of going to ACSE, you could do that. Um, but the um, you know the neat thing about you know the DARPA is really exists there to be um, kind of the DOD's venture capitalists, the innovators. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the, the DOD is a vast bureaucracy. Um, and, in fact, the, uh, the the DARPA Network Challenge, the Red Blue Challenge that I just described, um, 
was a was a key part of a of a book that came out a couple of years ago called Moonshots about how do you uh, inspire innovation within bureaucracies, um, and so that you know that was the entire the entire point of DARPA. They they are purposely small. Uh, they never want to be more than 800 people. Oh wow! Um, because they don't want to get too big and and too bureaucratic to be able to do innovative things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess that kind of transitions right into our topic of bureaucracy. Um, I guess when we first met, you discussed bureaucracy <laughs> as this really impeding force on like. Uh, what, what was the phrase? Um, progress unhindered by uh, <laughs> tradition or something like that. So uh, can you get into bureaucracy and how it can play such a role um, in an innovative, because DARPA yeah, is a, right. it's an extremely innovative uh, organization. Did you ever see that any type of bureaucracy occur in there or was the size of it being minimized uh, inhib- uh, inhibitor. Yeah, that I mean, that was really why they've structured themselves the way that they are. Um, you know, they are they are tasked to be the DoD's innovators. Mm-hmm. You know, that's kind of their mission mission directive. The, um, uh, you know, it's not that bureaucracies are inherently bad. Um, the, bureaucracies just are. Um, you know, you have when you have large organizations uh, and the DOD, you know, any, any, any government entity is generally going to be a large organization mm-hmm. and the department of defense, the air force are also both large organizations. And so that, you know, everybody that is graduating commissioning in the air force, they are entering a, a bureaucratic system. And that, and that doesn't mean that bureaucracies are necessarily inherently evil. Um, but they, so James, there's a, there's a classic book out there from um, a political scientist, uh, James Q. Wilson. Uh, it's called Bureaucracy. Uh, and it's a case study in, in why bureaucracies are inefficient. Um, you know, by, almost by design uh, or, or just by circumstance, um, the inefficiency is baked into bureaucracies. And so learning how to navigate that uh, as a young officer and still get things done is incredibly important. Mm-hmm. The, um, one of the ways that you do that is you actually set off, um, parts of the organization. This is, this is why the, uh, Safi Bacall who wrote Loon Shots, uh, which had the chapter about the DARPA network challenge, uh, had an entire char- chapter about DARPA because here's a classic example of a, of a franchise organization, the DOD, um, that knows it has to innovate. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we have to innovate faster than our adversaries. That's the entire uh, mantra behind, or the entire purpose behind uh, Chief Brown's Chief of Staff of the Air Force, uh, General Brown's um, mantra to accelerate change or lose. You know, if we do not adapt to the changing nature of war, we're going to get our butts kicked. Um, you know, if if China is able to move uh, faster than us uh, and able to adapt to the future of war faster than us, uh, then we're going to lose the next war. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so the chief's point is that, yep, great. It's it's awesome that we have DARPA. It's awesome that the Air Force has the Rapid Capabilities Office, the RCO, which is the one that are, is doing the B-21, is doing okay. the B-21 faster than any other major weapon system program that we've done it before. Um, but that's not enough. We need every single person out there to innovate and to accelerate change. 
And that's going to be hard. You know, we are in a bureaucracy, and it's, it's hard to maneuver in that. Um, and so the point, you know, is, you know, for the lieutenants, you know, when, you know, after you throw your hat up in the air and you put up those gold bars on is not to get discouraged, uh, by this inefficient system that doesn't want to change. You know, the nature, what makes a bureaucracy a bureaucracy is not, you know, not only its size, but the fact that it is tied to processes more than products and, and not being frustrated by that and by going after the product, um, is is one of the key things that I you know I, I really want you know our, it's it's our twenty year olds that are going to accelerate change. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned that bureaucracies aren't inherently bad. I've never heard a good thing really said about bureaucracies. <laughs> what, you, what, yeah. what exactly? What what do you see good in a bureaucracy? Because I'm sure there yeah. are. There's pros and cons to everything. Yeah. yeah, you know, so picking on bureaucracies is kind of like picking on the slow fat kid in dodgeball. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's just easy to do. <laughs> you know, so it's it's like yeah, all right. Um, so the the mere fact that you have to get an organization as big as the Air Force is. You know, so if we just take the active duty part, you know, 200 some odd thousand, um, you know, without all the you know, reserve and, and guard components uh, and get all of them moving in the same direction at the same time, you know, wearing the uniform the same way, you know, doing OPRs and EPRs and, and all the other training. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it's frustrating because sometimes it's not it's a non-responsive system or it doesn't understand what your particular needs are. Uh, but that's why we give so much authority, so much command authority to our commanders. Um, here's a good example. Um, so, and it's a COVID-19 example. Uh, I was really, really proud of the academy. Um, you missed a lot of that. Uh, yeah. You, you, well, I mean, I was at... You were in high Marianne school. For, yep, yeah. yep. Um, but early on, you know, so part of the DOD, the DOD had a COVID task force and had a lot of, D, you know, policies. Um, and one of the policies early on was quarantine was a 14 day period. So if you're exposed, uh, to somebody that tested positive for COVID, uh, we had to quarantine you. So, you know, we took the, the side John tower and converted it completely over to a Q and I ward. Mm-hmm. Um, and we took a lot of, you know, we, we were collecting a lot of data here at the academy. We had models of how does COVID pass through the cadet population um, and predictive models and responsive models. And we also had a lot of test data on on when somebody enters quarantine, how likely they are to test positive, and at what point they're allowed to test positive. Mm-hmm. And we also read the scientific literature on you know what is the probability of a false negative uh, during the course of the incubation period um, and after the incubation period for SARS-CoV-2. And it turns out that there's an inflection point at day five and the actual minimum false negative point is day eight after exposure. Okay. Um, and so a full 14 days, you know, when you're missing class, when you miss 14 days of class here at the academy, that's a huge impact. Uh, You know, differential equations are hard to learn. It's even harder when you're sitting over there inside John tower, uh, not, not allowed to go anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, we looked at the data, we looked at the science, we, and we said, you know what? If we tested on day five, we could have cadets go to class, wear a mask, and, you know, 85% of cases are found by day five in quarantine, you know, based on our own data. Mm-hmm. Well, the DOD policy was 14 days. 
but it wasn't the DOD policy wasn't written for the Air Force Academy where we had 40 lessons and you had to learn differential equations. It was written where, hey, you know, you're you're in a you know a tank, uh, or you're on a ship, and you know, 14 days, yeah, okay, so you can't do the mission for 14 days, but we're not in a shooting war right now, so it's not a big deal. Mm-hmm. You're not really going to miss anything. Well, you miss 14 days of differential equations. Guess what? <laughs> you might lose your major. Yeah. So you know, significant mission impact. Um. We had the authority, or we really didn't have the authority. Uh, the superintendent took the authority uh, based on the data that we had. Uh, again, a risk-managed decision. Hey, based on this, uh, we think it's really low risk. We're dealing with a healthy population. We are going to let cadets go to class after day five of quarantine with a negative test. We're going to test them again on day eight, and we'll test them on the final day on day 14, which is the normal day of testing for quarantine. Mm-hmm. That was 100 in 80 degrees out from what the DOD policy was. And there were people that says, you guys can't do that. But we did it because commanders do have authority to do things when it makes sense for their command. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's kind of a good example of bureaucracies exist for a good reason because, you know, what you don't want to have happen is, hey, there's this pandemic. Every unit make up your own policy. You know, you need kind of a centralized top-down, here's the... But then you also you reserve the ability for commanders to make decisions that are specific to their thing. Yeah. So, I mean, we're not a small unit here. You know, we're 4,000 cadets plus 1,000 faculty and staff. Mm-hmm. Uh, so 5,000 people um, and a very, very public thing. You know, so if we had gotten it wrong, um, you know, we could have turned into the, you know, USS, you know, Theodore Roosevelt. Um, but we didn't. Uh, you know, we did our homework. Uh, we had a lot of data. We uh, presented it to the superintendent. He's like, yep, that makes sense. Let's do that. So that's that kind of implementation of understanding commander's intent and the command discretion of... Yes. Okay. Yes. And and that's probably the, the biggest lesson is I, I would say that we often don't fully exercise the authority that we have. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it is... We as in who? I, we as in the Air Force uh, in general. So a lot of people get frustrated by bureaucracy. This is, a, again, a long answer to, to a very good question. Um, we often get frustrated by bureaucracy and just gripe about it without actually doing anything about it. Mm-hmm. Um, because it takes a lot to enact that change? or It does, uh, and it can be frustrating. You know, it's, it's not as bad as, you know, you know, Mark Twain, I think, uh, said, you know, everybody complains about the weather, but nobody does anything about it. Um, <laughs> You know, it's not so hard as changing the weather. Um, it's about doing what we can within the authority of what we have. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we often, commanders often have more authority. And, and they're probably never going, well, I won't say never. Um, they, they might make a poor decision, and they might be reprimanded for it. Um, and if it was really poor judgment, then they m- may be relieved of command. But if they did it for the right reasons and they had the right data um, and they made their best call at those at the turns, most of the commanders' commanders are going to accept that and say, well, you I, did see, all you could. I see why you made the decision that you did. Mm-hmm. Uh, I might have made a different one or I might have made the same one. It didn't turn out the way that we wanted, but good on you for, for trying to move forward. You know, mm-hmm. That's what we need. We don't want you know, just arthritic, you nope, know, we can't do it because – because the Chinese are going to. Mm-hmm. 
That was a really good uh, adjective, arthritic. I don't know why, but that really resonated <laughs> with, the, with the topic. So you mentioned a, an example of at the academy of kind of displaying bureaucracy and moving past it. But that's something that the cadets can um, relate to already. Mm. <laughs> but we, we want something that we can't necessarily relate to yet, something that we can look forward to. I mean, no one wants to look forward to challenges necessarily, but something that has hindered you and that you've maybe moved past or something along those lines. So there... When, so there, there, there's a difference between you know policy, regulations, and statute. You know, statute are laws that are passed by Congress. Mm-hmm. We have no choice. We have to obey the statutes. Uh, policy and regulation. Well, those we made those up. We can change those, or we can you know do exceptions to policy. Mm-hmm. And if it makes sense, um, then we should. You know what what is painful to hear is like, well, no, I agree with you. I'd love to do that, but the policy says this. I'm like, no, we made that up. Mm -hmm. Those are our own rules. We can change those rules if it makes sense. And and you have to strike a balance. You don't want to be willy-nilly about, you know, because then it would just be chaos and nobody would know what's going on. Uh, But when it makes sense, uh, we should exercise that authority. But, you know, so let me see if I can think of a good example. Um. Like, I know, I understand that being a pilot, that's very, I'm assuming there's not a lot of bureaucracy because that's a very, it's like the culture is very forward from what I understand. Um, maybe in your other positions, maybe at the Pentagon or something. The, um, so uh, there are a lot of rules uh, and regulations uh, that do govern flying. Uh, and those are for a good reason. You know, mm-hmm. you know, you will never fly into a thunderstorm in peacetime. There's no, there's no peacetime mission. I think is what the reg says. No peacetime mission that requires you to fly into a thunderstorm. Um, that's one that I wouldn't recommend. You know, violating. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also training rules that are written in blood. Um, you know, we have when we're when we're doing dogfighting, we have bubbles of 500 feet between the aircraft, and if you violate those bubbles. Um, you know, we, you're supposed to call knock it off and we're supposed to figure out why that happened. Why do we just violate that training rule? Cause when we, we have, we have crashed airplanes, we have smashed airplanes in together. We've had mid airs, we've killed people. Um, not necessarily through blatant violation of the bubbles, but because, you know, now the reaction time, you know, things are so, you know, when you're, you know, 500 feet apart, you know, closing at 500 knots each. So a thousand knots, you know, combined closure, you know, that's a significant amount. Um, Not a lot of time. Bit, react, yeah, yeah, a little bit of miscalculation. You know, no high aspect gunshots. So no gunshots greater than 135 degrees of aspect angle because, again, things are very dynamic and you're pulling lead, which means you're both pulling towards the same point in space. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are all rules that are um, – I am not condoning breaking those. Uh, and, you know, when we're in the debrief and somebody has violated a training rule, you know, it is – absolutely not acceptable for them to say, yeah, but I knew it was safe. It's like, no, you know, these training rules are written in blood and we'll, we'll obey those. It's more the process type ones uh, where you didn't follow the procedure. You know, you were supposed to have this form, you know, signed by these three different people. Um, it's like, well, yeah, well, come on. You know, the, the person, the, per- the last person has already signed it. 
So we don't need to go get coordination from the prior two for this, you know, for whatever it is. Mm-hmm. You know, those are the types of, you know, bureaucratic things that, if it's necessary to short circuit them, then we should. Yeah, I can understand that. Relating it to say an EEEES or something, I don't know if you're familiar I with those. I'm very still. familiar with. Him. But I mean, it's like. Okay, I could have told my flight commander instead of it getting caught in his email for three days and he's too busy to sign it, I could have just pushed it right up. You yep. know what I mean? Yep. Or, of course, you know what I mean. Yep. But, okay, I, I, can, I can relate that yeah. to something. So, uh, what was the most rewarding aspect of your illustrious career? Illustrious. <laughs> the, um, so, you know, working on that X-Plane was really cool. Um, but I, I would, I'm just going to sound cheesy, uh, but I'm going to say being here, being back here at the academy, uh, really was was no kidding the most rewarding thing. Um, you Teaching, know, yeah, or? you know the and and cadets don't believe me. You know <laughs> we'll be in there, you know, you know working on working problems on the board or something. I'm like, this is the best part of my day. This is the best part of my week. And they'll think I'm making a joke. I'm like, and I make a lot of lame jokes, uh, but that's not one of them. <laughs> the um, it's the thing about it is um, there. You guys are not old enough to be cynical about the world yet. You're plenty cynical about the academy. It's mm-hmm. just part of it's just part about being a cadet is you gotta, you know, complain about the food mm-hmm. in Mitchell Hall and complain <laughs> about this and um, yeah, and there's there's lots more things to complain about now than when I was a cadet. Sure, <laughs> you know. So sure, cadets are cynical about the academy, but they're not cynical about life or the world yet. They're not. Mm-hmm. Um, you and there's this kind of hope and optimism uh, about the future that's uh, infectious. Okay. Uh, that you can only find with this population. Yeah. Is what you're saying? Yeah. These okay. eighteen to twenty year old, two year olds, they're just. I mean, I, I love the energy. I love the outlook. You know, the, like you know what you're doing right now, trying to trying to make a difference in other cadets' lives, trying to make you know help them figure out what do I want to be when I grow up. Mm-hmm. You know, by by creating the series of podcasts. I mean, what a great idea. Mm-hmm. You know, that's. You're not going to go, you know, you walk around the Pentagon with the 25,000 people that work in there, and they're plenty cynical about the world. <laughs> they're not, there's not people there making podcasts to make people's lives better. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's deeply rewarding. And, and, and not to mention the, you know, just the, the thrill of seeing, you know, people learn. Learning is awesome. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, that, you know, I hope, you know, anybody that's listening to this, you know, takes, you know, the advice to never stop learning. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's always new things. And I'm taking a, a, a course uh, through the Sloan School, MIT Sloan School right now, uh, on machine learning for executives. Okay. Um, and so there's, there, it's just such a such an exciting world, and there's always new things coming up, and uh, and there may be something that you you never knew you're interested in that you're going to like. Wow, this is really cool. It might be might be a might be a course, might be a book, might be a, a discipline that as an as a cadet you're like, oh, I hated that. And then you're like, ooh, actually, I really like history. Mm-hmm. Uh, not to pick on history. Um, but, you know, you're, you're going to see that there's seasons in life and your interests kind of change. And so always, you know, just cultivate and, and feed and fan the flames of that intellectual curiosity because that's what makes life continuously interesting. Mm. So all the, uh, the old priors out in the cadet ranks are, are bringing the cynicism to, to the academy. Sorry, I didn't mean to offend any friars out there, but I've had my experience with them, and they have their own takes. But beyond continuing to learn, if you do have any further 
advice to anybody who's looking to commission, whether that's ROTC or OTS or from the academy, what would you say to them? I'd say, so probably the hardest thing to do, and I'm still struggling to do this, um, is you've got to create some white space every day, every week, every month uh, for reflection. You know, that's this, like a coding term, right? White space. Uh, white space. Well, so on my calendar, you know, it's it, it, okay, it, empty. Okay, yeah. I didn't know if you were relating it because, like, I'm like, okay, I gotta analyze everything. Yeah. This guy <laughs> he's gonna come up with something. Sorry, I was yeah, probably overanalyzing. Yeah, so no, no, no. So on my calendar, the white space are the blank spaces. Yeah. Um, you know, because everyone, you know, the you know meetings for this are colored green, and these ones are blue, and these ones are purple, and and it just turns into this kaleidoscope of of and if you let you know the it's called the tyranny of the urgent. Um, you'll never have time for that strategic thinking if you don't have some time set aside. And that's one of those big rocks. You've probably heard of, you know, the, the trick about you got you know, these big rocks and these little rocks in this gravel and the sand, and how do you put them all in the bucket? You gotta no, put, I never oh, heard okay, that. so you got all these things, right? And if you put all the sand in the bucket first and then try to put the big rock in, it's going to stick out the top, and you're not going to have time. So okay. how do you fit all those things in the bucket? Well, you put the big rocks in first, mm -hmm. and then you put in the next smaller size and fit them in the cracks. And then finally, when you're done, you pour the sand in. It fills in all the gaps all around. So the big rocks are the things that you have to do first. Mm -hmm. um, that white space, having sufficient white space for reflection and strategic thinking. And that's that sand fitting in the, um, the Well, cracks. no, I think uh, – well, uh, so the, the big rock is is thinking strategically okay. uh, and doing the reflection because – because, you know, if we want to talk about continuous self-improvement, you know, always getting better, you know, treating every, you know, tomorrow I'm going to do this better, I'm going to do this better. Well, you need time to actually reflect back. And if you look at, you know, what do we do in fighter squadrons? Well, you know, we'll fly one-hour sortie, and we'll take eight hours to debrief it. Mm -hmm. And we, we, I mean, we start, we might spend half an hour early on debriefing the ground ops. The ground ops took all of 10 minutes, <laughs> and we spend 30 minutes dissecting you you were you were late on this radio call you were on the wrong frequency for this you didn't give me the signal when you were when you were doing this you did this wrong um, because you know it's that attention to detail that makes us better in the reflection on that uh, so okay. by having that that white space regularly scheduled where you can reflect you know keep a list of principles keep a list of priorities you know how am I doing this on this you know what do I want to do and you know, one year and three years and five years, and am I doing the right things uh, to, to line all those dominoes up? Mm -hmm. um, you know, that's a, you know, I, that's a, that's one of those things that it's easy to, it's easy to steal from that white space, just mm -hmm. like sleep. Um, and I don't steal from sleep personally, but I know a lot <laughs> of kids who do here. It's, um, you know, it, it turns out that, you know, you really do need eight hours. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Um, but it's the mar it's the easy place to take the margin. Yeah. Uh, and you can only do that for so long. Mm -hmm. um, I would, you know, so a piece of advice that I got that I, I really, really appreciated um, is, you know, so, you know, somebody told me, hey, get a subscription to The Economist. You know, it's going to sound really silly. Um, you know, the, the point is, is that be, you know, continuously read across multiple disciplines and things and current events and be knowledgeable. Uh, so when I graduated, um, and I've had it now for, you know, I graduated, geez, 27 years ago, 27 and a half years ago. Um, and I've had a subscription to The Economist uh, every year since then. What's the inflation on that look um, like? Uh, it's, 
I think it's about 110 bucks a year now for the for the print edition. Okay. Um, it comes out every week, and nowadays it's actually really convenient. Uh, you'll you'll dig this because uh, they actually there's there's a podcast of the entire thing, so okay. you can actually listen to the entire edition, uh, or listen to just the portions that you want, um, you know, through their app. So it actually is really convenient as you're driving to work or driving home, mm-hmm. going for a run, is to actually you know stay up on all the things. And you know the the you know there's there's lots of publications out there, but you know it's it's wide ranging. So there's a science technology section, there's an arts and culture section. Uh, there's, you know, world events and there's each region. And so it's, you know, an important thing about being an Air Force officer is, is, is being very knowledgeable across economics and policy and leadership and business and finance uh, and science and technology. Um, and, and that's just one example of a, of a, of a neutral, um, you know, on the political scale um, publication. So, you know, you know, one little practical piece you know, to, to accompany the, the very, you know, lofty, create white space to reflect <laughs> and be strategic in thinking. Read The Economist every week. Okay. Well, I, I really appreciate everything that you've given to me because this, uh, this conversation is beyond what I usually have on this show. <laughs> and although we Well, you can edit out it, all the stuff that doesn't work. <laughs> no, 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 no. Trust me. This is really cool. And I think just having the understanding of like there are the very surface level things of your job, but then there are the more higher lofty levels of bureaucracy and things that we need to work through, as well as understanding that there are kind of bigger goals that you can set for yourself that you've obviously achieved many of them. So I really appreciate you coming on and I hope we stay in touch. Yeah, of course, Andrew. And this, I, I commend you. This is a, a great service, I think. Uh, to, to share ideas with, with folks. So keep it up. Keep yeah, of course. Work. Well, thank you, sir. Well, there you have it. Colonel Douglas Wickert and his experience doing pretty much everything you can do as an engineer in the Air Force. I swear he's one of the smartest and wisest men I've ever spoken with. All the Aero Majors have it blessed. Congrats on finishing the fall semester and enjoy your time off. Thanks for listening. Cormout. out.